In this case, the truth was delayed, but today justice has been served. David Brian Sutherland went to prison for rape in 1985. He was identified by the victim in a photo lineup. But when it came time for trial, she could only say he resembled the attacker. Two other witnesses said he looked like he had lost weight. In 2001, 16 years later, the Ramsey County Attorney's Office started systematically reviewing convictions that could be retroactively DNA tested to make sure they were accurate. A year later, DNA testing exonerated Sutherland of the rape. He was proven innocent. But he didn't get out of prison. Because while he wasn't a rapist, he was a murderer. I'm Emily Havik, and this is Record of Wrong, a podcast that explores wrongful convictions and how to make them right. What happens to the people who finally get vindicated and to those who are never able to prove it? DNA testing initiated by the Ramsey County Attorney's Office has resulted in the exoneration of a man convicted of rape. When Susan Gertner was the Ramsey County attorney, she didn't just seek new convictions. She started uprooting old ones. Gertner's study looked at 116 convictions from 1962 to 1995, when DNA evidence was standardized. And when she found a conviction that didn't hold up, she didn't try to hide it. We had a press conference to announce the vacation of that conviction. Back in 1985, when the sexual assault occurred, I don't think any of us could have imagined the tools we have now, the power of DNA evidence. We also followed up with um, system changes to uh, make sure that that didn't happen again. Susan Gertner knew that David Brian Sutherland was not a poster child for exoneration. He was serving a life sentence for two murders— and the exoneration did not set him free. At the most, it may have made him eligible for parole a little sooner. But probably more fundamentally is that if the conviction was false, it needs to be vacated for the sake of the integrity of the system. It goes well beyond the consequences for this individual. Susan says the idea of re-examining your own cases is fundamental to the role of a prosecutor. I think the most important role of the prosecutor in post-conviction situations is to be open to new evidence, uh, new information. I think it's important as a prosecutor to look across the board at any opportunities you have to check your work, because if it's left up to the happenstance of an individual getting someone's attention, whether it's the Innocence Project or a relative or or friend um, to sort of rattle people's cages and get a second look, it shouldn't be based on that happenstance. It should be across the board. Gertner's pretty sure she led the first prosecutor-initiated DNA review in the country, but it wasn't the last. She was on the front end of a growing wave that's now taking the form of conviction integrity units, and no one has gone at it more aggressively than Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner. Everybody in prosecution has looked at, um, you know, what's your win rate? What's your win percentage? What's your batting average? What's your conviction rate? I was asked about our conviction rate just yesterday at a press conference. And no one ever really said, what is your accurate 
conviction rate. They just said, what is your conviction rate? The Philadelphia Conviction Integrity Unit has 21 exonerations under its belt for 20 people since Larry Krasner took office in 2018. So one of the things we found as we went through and systematically, uh, frankly, rejected an awful lot of uh, requests for exoneration, but were successful so far in achieving 18 exonerations for 17 people. One of the things we realized is that we were lowering our batting average. We were lowering our conviction rate. We were looking worse for having the system do the right thing. You know, the metrics of injustice are built into, even built into how we talk about it. I talked to Krasner and Patricia Cummings, the leader of Philadelphia's Conviction Integrity Unit, in February. You heard him say 18 exonerations there, but that's how fast they're moving. They've secured three more in just a few months. We generally try to assign cases to a team um, because we want to make sure that we're having more than one set of eyes on the case because we recognize if you're going to step foot in a courtroom and ask that a conviction be vacated or set aside, you better be darn confident in what you're asking the court to do. Patricia Cummings was brought in from Texas as an outsider to lead the unit. It's been tough at times to assume that role, but she says the pros outweigh the cons. You know, I can tell you on more than one occasion, I had people in the criminal justice system say to me, I'm not going to let this girl from Texas tell me how to do things in Philly. One of the biggest pros that you have in bringing an outsider in is that you don't have that kind of proverbial, the fox guarding the hen house. Um, because I don't have alliances to prosecutors or defense lawyers or to judges. I really am coming in and saying, I am going to look at this as objectively as I can and ultimately make recommendations regarding what I think is right. You know, even in our office, when Patricia is looking at a case that was handled 20 years ago, the same prosecutor may be in the office. The mentee of that prosecutor may be in the office. And people who have been here for some time often view it as an attack and a reproach that you're looking over their shoulder, uh, especially if you determine that we should try to undo a conviction. It can cause tension within the office between people who are really people of goodwill. There can be people in the office who are not tied up with the mistakes of the past, the misconduct of the past, the crimes committed by prosecutors in the past, but who nonetheless kind of bridle at the independence want to view themselves as being part of the team, having access to all the same information, pushing for the same just outcomes, wanting consensus. So I do think there's quite a bit of tension within an organization that's trying to right its past wrongs, but I see no tension in the notion that a prosecutor should be trying to do the right thing moving forward and trying to do the right thing moving backward, even if that means fixing past misconduct or mistakes or, frankly, prosecutorial crimes. In fact, Krasner and Cummings are both adamant that it is the prosecutor's duty to fix the mistakes of the past. It's even written into the prosecutor's ethical obligations in the model rules recommended by the American Bar Association. But Patricia says not every state has adopted those rules. She thinks they should. 3.8 of the model rules says that prosecutors do have an obligation to disclose exculpatory information in a post-conviction setting, and they do have an obligation if they've received evidence that maybe an innocent person has been convicted, they've got an obligation to do something about it. So I think, you know, if, if I had my way, that would be the first step towards uniformity to making our criminal justice system much more reliable and fair. I asked Larry and Patricia a question that I've been asking almost everyone I talk to. 
Maybe it should be difficult to get out of prison once you're convicted, but is it too difficult? So it's too difficult, um, and it, it was designed to be too difficult, um, and that's just what our criminal justice system has been. And more specifically, we designed it for finality, um, and it goes back to the arrogance, I think, of the stakeholders involved in the system, and that is believing you know, that we are getting it right. And so since we're getting it right, how dare anybody have the tools necessary to go back and open it up to see if, in fact, we did. As Patricia and her team open old cases and find them to be lacking, they're identifying recurring themes, problems with eyewitness identification, false confessions, and prosecutorial misconduct that Patricia says can range from something unintentional to negligence to what looks more like a pattern. How can it be that sometimes folks can't recognize that maybe an innocent person was convicted and even go beyond that, do something about it? I I don't think that it's always nefarious um, reasons. Cummings brought up something we heard from researcher Keith Finley in a previous episode— Cognitive bias. I guarantee you, prosecutors generally are going into it saying, I want to do the right thing here, and I want to convict a guilty person. I don't think they're saying I want to convict an innocent person. So they go into it with that and um, think about all the layers there. They have a police officer who brings it saying that. Then the prosecutor looks at it. Prosecutor says, yep, I got a guilty person. Then they go into the courtroom and then you could have a situation where a jury of 12 people then hear all of that and they ultimately say, you got the right person. And then think about, you could have 20 years worth of appeals where appellate courts say the same thing. And then all of a sudden, something comes to light that kind of upsets that entire world. Um, And it is so difficult, I think, as human beings, for us to be able to step back and say, oh my God, we were all wrong. I'll now say the terrible thing that's true, which is some of these prosecutors belong in a jail cell. Uh, And they belong in a jail cell because when you look at what they actually did, it is evident that they were way more concerned about winning than they were concerned about whether or not an individual was innocent. And I have heard people like that in the Philadelphia DA's office say words to the effect of they must be separated from society when you're talking about one person. So who exactly are they? I've heard prosecutors say, well, if he didn't do this, he did something else as if that's an answer to a discussion about innocence for a particular charge, especially on a serious case. So, um, you know, I I think Patricia is absolutely right. But I also think we're being a little nice. There are people who have held these positions and abused this power who were effectively criminal kidnappers. Uh, I mean, I guess if you seek the death penalty, there's an argument they were desk murderers, as they used to say in World War II. You know, that's who they were. And... We occasionally see that. We occasionally see that this is more than dumb lawyering. This is more than a culture. This is deliberate, willful, malicious, intentional uh, effort to win at all costs without regard for the very obvious and significant possibility of innocence. And what do you do when you see that? Stay tuned. The National Registry of Exonerations from UC Irvine and the U of Michigan keeps a list of conviction integrity units, like the one Larry and Patricia run. Most of them were founded in the 20-teens, with several just in the last couple years. 
The registry has actually split them up into two categories, units with recorded exonerations and units with no exonerations recorded. The second list is longer. There's a lot of units out there that people say are really not real units, and you know they call those crinos, conviction review and name only, um, just because it's the popular political thing of the day to do. Minnesota is not on either list yet, but it will be. The state attorney general's office and the Great North Innocence Project are teaming up to start one with a $300,000 grant from the Department of Justice. You know, I guess the advice that I would give to other units and I would give to the AG in Minnesota is that $300,000 ain't going to do it. You are going to need a bunch of people. You're going to need people who have deep experience. $300,000 might buy you one person with deep experience and a youngster and some overhead, um, but it's not going to buy you the resources that you need to do a very serious and deep dive on cases that look like they're worth being triaged and look like they're worth being addressed. Counting paralegals um, and lawyers, I'm up to almost 20 people. So it's quite amazing. And that's not enough people. I was telling somebody the other day, our queue of cases to look at is so incredibly long that if all of us worked every day, um, we probably wouldn't get that through that queue. If, if you were really looking at them and not having to triage them the way we do, it'd probably take a decade. If everybody who was convicted of an offense in Minnesota was convicted on the basis of law and evidence supporting those convictions, and if everybody who's innocent, didn't do what they're accused of, is free, and we can do it on the initiative of the prosecutor, not simply rely on the courts, but on the initiative of the prosecutor to make sure those things are true, I would say we're, we're uh, succeeding. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison is leading the charge on the state's new conviction review unit. It's only the fourth one in the country to be run through an attorney general's office. Ellison is forming a review board that will reinvestigate cases submitted to them for review. When they make a determination, they will submit a recommendation to the prosecutor in that jurisdiction. It will then be up to the prosecutor to decide whether to move forward with dismissing the complaint. Ellison says this process gives prosecutors a chance to make the first move, instead of waiting on a defense attorney to get justice for a person who's wrongfully convicted. We should just do it. Once we know what we should do, we should do it. And we shouldn't have to have a judge ordering us to do it if we know that it's right. Keith Ellison is a prosecutor. In fact, he's the state's top prosecutor. He recently led a successful prosecution of Derek Chauvin, the first white officer in Minnesota to be convicted of murdering a black man, George Floyd. Ellison is a person who believes in prosecutors as the good guys. And he says he plans to call upon the noble ideals that motivate prosecutors in Minnesota when he asks them to take another look at their own cases. One of the things I hope to say is say, look, we know that you are a good prosecutor. We know that you uh, are only trying to protect the public, that you got into this for all the right reasons. And we also know that most of the people you prosecute did do what you said they did. 
But this case is different, and we need you to understand that it is no loss of face for you to just say, you know, this one due to political pressure, due to mistakes, due to the science was wrong, due to something. That, that, that maybe this, this one didn't come out the way that we wanted to. And it's not going to hurt your credibility to say that this person should get out. In fact, it might bolster your credibility because you're the kind of person who's not afraid to admit a mistake. One of the highest profile cases expected to hit the desk of this review unit soon is that of Mayan Burrell convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison at 16 years old. An Associated Press investigation found that Burrell's co-defendants now swear he wasn't even there. Burrell has maintained his innocence and rejected every plea deal. His sentence was recently commuted by the State Board of Pardons, which includes Keith Ellison. So he's out of prison now, but he still has the murder on his record. His lawyer plans to ask the Conviction Review Unit to look at his case. Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman has been fighting Burrell's appeals, recently saying there's no question that he pulled the trigger. And Mike Freeman is on the CRU board. So is John Choi, the Ramsey County attorney. They could both see cases of people they helped put behind bars. What role will Mike Freeman play in a case like that, where he's already publicly said he doesn't believe that person's innocent? Well, you know, the, uh, if you have a direct role in a case... That's a case that it makes sense to recuse yourself on that particular matter. So um, I will tell you that Mike Freeman has been very fair. Uh, I don't think it's fair to ask him to surrender his honestly held view. But I also think that it's fair to say, well, if, if you have a dog in this fight, let others who have a little bit more detachment take a look at it. And if you're right, they'll see it. And maybe if you're not, maybe they won't see it. But, you know, it takes a certain amount of courage, and I think that both John Choi and Mike Freeman have that. If the board recommends that Burrell be exonerated, Freeman will still have the authority to accept or reject their decision. Ellison does not have jurisdiction over another prosecutor's cases. There will be cases where the prosecutor, even after we review everything, simply does not agree that the defendant was wrongfully convicted. In that case, you're going to need defense counsel, you're going to need the post-conviction process, you're going to need courts of appeal, uh, habeas corpus, you're going to need those things uh, to achieve uh, what may be the just result. Um, So we don't want to have this replace the court system. We need both. Keith Ellison does not think this board will solve the problem of wrongful convictions in Minnesota. For him, it's just one more tool to combat the inequities in the system. So, I mean, we do know that we have a system where there, uh, there's a lot of things that we need to get a higher quality of justice. And I believe that prosecutors should always be uh, looking out for how to do a greater level of justice. We're not ministers of punishment. We're ministers of justice. And mercy and taking a second look at the evidence is part of the cause of justice. There are many people who have been convicted of crimes they didn't commit You know, uh, and the system ought to work for every single person. And, you know, and if you say you didn't do it, we're not guaranteeing you're going to get out. You may never get out, but we will say that we're not going to simply ignore your plea. If you've got law and facts to bring forward, somebody should at least look at it. It's not a panacea. We don't expect that nirvana will prevail 
after we get our CIU up and running. But we do hope that in a small way, it'll help somebody uh, and that will make our society and that will make our criminal justice system an institution that more people can trust and believe in. Woven through any attempt to overturn wrongful convictions is the fact that among those behind bars in the United States, Black and brown people are overwhelmingly overrepresented. Well, we start with the premise that after slavery ended, it was replaced by criminal justice system in, in many ways. So, for example, one of the most, the biggest examples of that is something called convict leasing. After slavery ended in, the 18, in 1865, within a few years, if you were a black man in Alabama, Mississippi, or wherever, and you were found to be unemployed, it would be lawful for you to be arrested for vagrancy, put in prison, and then put on a chain gang. And then the plantation you used to labor on as a slave now could hire you from the county to do what you used to do, you know, a few years before, still for free. Uh, And so we know the criminal justice system uh, has always sort of not treated people fairly. But now we want the system to be fair to everyone. And so we have this legacy of Black overrepresentation in the criminal justice system. You know, a lot of people think, well, it's because African-Americans are poor and socially disadvantaged that they're in the criminal justice system because they don't have other options. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes not. There were a whole list of crimes that only Black people could be convicted of, (laughs) you know? So that's not, oh, Black folks are poor, so they're committing crimes. No, that's just we've made crimes for you, right? And there's a reason why, you know, in the, in the old Confederacy, you had these lifetime bans on voting if you're convicted of a crime, right? Because that diminished the political power of the Black community. You know, this is a legacy we're dealing with right up until this very moment. We didn't start it. This generation didn't start it, but we've got we've to do something about it. I mean, there was a generation that said, you know what, we're going to end slavery. Lincoln's generation said, slavery in America, we're going to stop it. And they did. Martin Luther King's generation said, you know, we're going to end Jim Crow. And they did. They ended Jim Crow, an institution that had been around for over 100 years. What if this generation said, we're going to end racism? What, what about that? And, that? and so the CRU is just a little small drop in a big ocean to try to have a higher quality of justice for everyone. How big is that ocean? No one really knows. We started this podcast by saying that thousands, probably tens of thousands, of innocent people are sitting in prison right now. And as we heard from Javon Davis, Sherman Townsend, Terry Olson, and George Lewis, even when people are finally released, their convictions haunt them. Javon was in prison nearly six years for attempted murder before a judge ruled he had been wrongfully convicted. He's out now, but he still thinks about the people who were in there with him. I can tell you and everybody in the real how, how it is, but it's something you would never be able to get because you won't go through it. Like, and I'm, it just makes you think about other people. Like, how many more people are sitting in jail for no reason? I know that feeling. I know. I know. I, I know that feeling. And it, and it's one of those things. Like, if you, if it hasn't happened to you, you can't fully get it because it's it's horrible. Like, it's horrible, horrible. Even in a district with a prosecutor who's working to find wrongful convictions and make them right like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, there's no way to get to everyone. The best that we can do, to be honest about this, is view it as um, as an emergency ward or maybe as a, 
a wartime field hospital where everything you're doing is triage. You have limited resources, you have limited time. People have been in, in jail cells for a very, very long time. And you're trying to figure out the ones where there's a possibility of saving a life, and then you're trying to save that life. In Philadelphia, there's a unit of 20 staffers dedicated to saving those lives. But in most cities, wrongfully convicted people have to hope that by some chance, they'll be one of the lucky few who gets the attention of someone like Julie Jonas at the Great North Innocence Project. But in a system built to preserve convictions, sometimes it's just not enough. You know, there are many people, and those are probably the saddest cases that we work on, where we look at the trial, we think that there were mistakes made, but there's no new evidence. There's nothing that we can develop that's new and that wasn't available at the time of trial. So we can't meet the procedural hurdles that are required to secure somebody's release, to get an exoneration. And that's what's really, really frustrating is when we look at a case and we think they're innocent, but there's just nothing we can do to help. This is Record of Wrong, a CARE 11 original podcast. Check out recordofwrong.com for more information about the cases we cover. Record of Wrong is reported and produced by me, Emily Havik, with editor Rita Butero. Original music is by Dave Mailing and me. Dave Mailing also did our mixing and mastering. Original artwork by David Malman. Special thanks to Lauren Olson, Janine Vogelar, and other CARE 11 management and staff for their contributions and to the people who shared their stories with us. 